All right, take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to continue our study in the Ten Commandments, and we are uh, kind of on the last half, um, approaching the end of our time and our journey in uh, this amazing series. And um, I've, I've uh, heard uh, many compliments, and I have heard comments from many of you uh, about what God has done and just kind of spoken to you through this series. And today's going to be powerful as well, and I hope it's something that is going to help uh, resonate in our hearts and, um, and help us just to think a little bit more about God's interaction with us and, and His intentions for life and for the family. And the songs that we were singing was about that family and, and, and faithfulness, not only to our family, but also to God. And, and those things are always so interconnected. And our command this morning is the same way. It's going to connect our family, and it's going to connect also with us to God. The command is this. It's Exodus chapter 20, and it's verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Oh, we've heard that before. We're familiar with the command. But sometimes the truth of God's Word can be very elusive, and if we're not you know, kind of astute to what's happening here, we, we may tend to lose its impact on, on us. You know, back in World War II, there was a big event that was going to be happening in June 1944. The name of the event was called Operation Overlord. Hitler and uh, the Axis advance had just, you know, covered Europe uh, France was, you know, they were speaking German, or they were going to be very, very soon. And so had the Allies, and if the Allies did not do something amazing, um, it would be a lost cause. And so the powers that be uh, got together, and they planned this operation. You know it by its more common name as D-Day, the invasion of France. What happened, though, in the preparations of this invasion is an amazing story nonetheless, and there are thousands of details I would love to kind of share with you. But one instance in particular kind of resonates with our text this morning. It happened that prior to Operation Overlord, aircraft reconnaissance planes were flying over the English Channel, flying into France, taking pictures of everything. They had to know where the enemy was. They were coming back, and they were developing the films, and they were looking at the pictures. General Taylor, General Montgomery, uh, in, in, uh, uh, for, for the British, all looking at this, and, and many, you know, other folks, you know, who were intelligence people, all looking at the pictures. They knew where the tanks were. They knew where the, where the trenches were. They saw all these things, but something else showed up on these pictures that uh, they didn't know quite what to make of. This network of squares all over France little dark squares and rectangles, different shapes, different sizes, but all over the landscape. These were hedgerows. That's what they turned out to be. Well, they figured that that's what they were. Okay, they're hedgerows. They had intelligence on the ground. You know, yeah, they're hedgerows. That's what they are. Oh, okay, well, they don't look that big. So, you know, we'll be good. At least we know where they are, etc. June 6, 1944, by dawn's early light, the 101st Airborne, 82nd Airborne, 3rd Airborne Divisions were all over, flying the, their aircraft in there, dropping down the paratroopers all over 
you read your history, you know how all that stuff got scattered and it was not turning out very well, at least in the beginning. And one of the things that created problems was these hedgerows. What they thought were little hedgerows, like we're kind of accustomed to seeing a couple feet tall, a couple feet wide. These were six, eight feet tall, ten feet wide, almost impenetrable. These hedgerows from the air looked so different, but when you got up close personal to them, it was, it was a big deal. You know, in the Bible, the Bible uses the term hedgerows. It, it uses the word hedge as a picture of protection. You may recall in Job chapter 1, you remember Satan accused God of saying, well, you know, the reason why Job's so faithful to you is because you've got a hedge around it. You've got him protected. You've got him sealed in. You've got a hedge around him and all that he has. I want you to think about this command, you shall not commit adultery as a hedge around the family, specifically the husband and wife. That's what this is. This command is a hedge. It's, a, it's something that God has placed around the husband and wife. This morning, we're going to be looking at the seventh commandment, and as we've begun looking at this already, and it's simple, there's not a lot of insider language to explain. There's not any difficult terms. It's, you know, take it. You, what you see is what you get. But, you know, no one, no one really here, I don't think we really have to spend a lot of time talking about the damage that adultery can do, right? Physically, emotionally, relationally. Uh, adultery wreaks havoc everywhere. The greatest damage, however, comes between your relationship, between you and God. That's why, that's why David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, did he sin with Bathsheba? I mean, what, what, didn't sin ha- affect other people? Yes, it did. His point here was not excluding everybody else that was wounded or hurt. He was saying, God, everything that I did violated every command that originated with you. So everything that I did, God, I have violated you against you and you alone. Because God, David was recognizing God as the author of all of the rules of our earthly relationships. That's what he was doing. But that was not the intent of sex. It's not what God had in mind. As a matter of fact, the the biblical view of sex is going to begin with God. Why? Because it was his creation to begin with. And it was a gift. It's God's idea for there to be a physical union between one man and one woman in the bonds of holy matrimony. Oftentimes, though, the church didn't really get it right. As a matter of fact, for, for years prior to the Reformation, we have historians and other theologians that were writing, and they were writing some pretty wacky stuff about this. One, one guy by the name of Tertullian, church historian, he, he regarded the extinction of the human race as preferable to procreation. Ambrose said that married couples ought to be ashamed of their sexuality. Augustine was willing to admit that intercourse might be lawful, but taught that sexual passion was always a sin. 
Many priests counseled couples to abstain from sex altogether. The Catholic Church gradually began to prohibit sex on certain holy days so that by the time of Martin Luther and the Reformation, they had on their calendar 183 of those special days. But you know what? That may be ancient, but in recent days, we still struggle with it, don't we? Some of you cringe when I've just mentioned the word. That's because we've not done a very good job at teaching the generations to come what gift God has given and the rules of the game. It ought not to be off limits. Maybe perhaps why we see struggles in this area and we see high percentages of people who are violating these commands because we're not talking about it any longer and we're afraid of these sensitive ears. They become sensitive because, well, we're not preaching what we ought to be preaching. So even recent attempts to teach this command have not always been the best. It was a little boy returning from Sunday school one day and he and his dad were talking right after the morning worship service. They were on their way home, and the young boy looked at his father and said, Daddy, what does it mean when it says, Thou shalt not commit agriculture? <laughs> there was hardly a beat between the question and the father's reply. He said, Son, that just means you're not supposed to plow the other man's field. <laughs> the answer was satisfactory to both. <laughs> But you know, we can't make light of the prohibitions either. In an explicit sense, this, this command directly forbids sexual relations between married men and married women with people they ain't married to. But this command does go deeper. It is that hedgerow to protect the family. It was God's design. Listen, it was God's design to put some, some, to put some hedgerows around us. Why? Because he wanted the family unit to grow and thrive in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Why? It's the building blocks for his bride. It's not so much as is, you know, well, you know, the Bible is so restricted. The Bible is this. The Bible is that. No, no, no. God's got a plan. He's got a design for you. He's got a design for me. He has a design for this church. And purity is a part of that design. If there is no purity, guys, listen to me. If there is no purity, then eventually there is no church. And whatever you may have is just a congregation with no power. But by implication, this command also teaches against other forms of premarital sex, postmarital sex, uh, cohabitation without formal marriage, incest, and all the adultery that you could think of through the electronic media and magazines and the internet. And in an implicit sense, this command also argues against divorce as well. One writer, Douglas Stewart, wrote in his commentary, he says, if marriage is so important that it must be protected against adulteration, even the sort of adulteration that might occur even in brief interludes, it, is certainly, uh, it certainly is important enough to protect against disillusion altogether. But here's the good news. There is no form of adultery that is considered an unpardonable sin. It can be and is forgiven at the foot of the cross First John 1 John 1.9 says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of 
all of our sins and to clean us from all unrighteousness. It's not unpardonable. But you can prevent adultery by putting a hedge around your married relationship. Students, you can do it by, by, by putting this hedge around your single relationship, even in a dating relationship. My wife and I, when we were dating, it was an often practice of ours to do devotions together. We would find a book, and uh, we, we love to read, uh, you know, just from different writers. And, and as a matter of fact, we, we read books on marriage to prepare our minds and, and our hearts. And it became a vital part of our dating relationship. And I'm going to tell you guys, it prevented a lot of things. Because at the end of the day, students, don't let anybody here fool you. At the end of the day, everybody's blood in here is red, and we are all made of flesh, including your pastor. And if we don't have hedges around and in our lives where they're supposed to be, it's not a question of if, it'll be a question of when. Not if, but when. And so I want to give you some hedgerows to consider. I'm going to give you five hedgerows for you to consider and then two things for our church to consider, okay? I think there should be like a total of seven. Because, you know, we live in a sexually driven society the most I think we've ever seen. Advertisements, conversations, social media, even the pharmaceutical industry, nearly anything else you can think of has been affected. Or should I say stained by an unbiblical and an unhealthy view of sexuality? We need these hedgerows more than ever. First of all, secure your mind. The first hedge that you're going to need in your life is going to be around your brain pan. It has to be there. Why? That's where the battle is fought and whether it is won or lost. Job said in Job 31, verse 1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. He says, in other words, teenagers, he said, hey, in my mind, I just made a decision that I'm not, when I look at a young girl, she's not a piece of meat. I look at her as someone created in God's image, someone beautiful in God's eyes. He made a decision up here. He built a hedge right around here. Matter of fact, God says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that knowing the will of God, one of the big keys about knowing the will of God is transforming your mind. You can't even, listen, you got to think straight just to know the will of God. So it begins with securing our mind. It begins, listen, it begins by being careful what we put our minds on because our minds will follow. Listen, you, you, you put a little thought in your mind and you'll go right after it. Matter of fact, Jesus rooted adultery in our minds in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. He says, if you look upon a woman and have those lustful intents and they're inside, you're playing out that scenario in your mind, you've already done it. In other words, he's saying that your mind, it's, it's just that breeding ground where so much can happen between you and it'll impact you and, the, and your walk with God for good or for bad. Secure your mind. Number two, block out temptation. Block out temptation. You say, Pastor, I, you mean to tell me I have control over temptations? Well, 
two things come to mind. One is the Lord's model prayer. Lead us not into temptation. I pray that every day. God, keep my feet, keep my heart, keep my hands, keep my mind, keep my eyes, keep my emotional health, keep everything away from those things that Satan knows are those easy snacks. Lead me not into temptation. He told his close band of disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. So I'm telling you, church, yes, you can. Through your walk with God, you can impact those times of temptation in your life. Don't you dare treat those times of temptation as just some arbitrary uh, time of chance you have no control over. Yes, you do. You block it out. You avoid the magazines, the movies, the TV channels. You, listen, for those who struggle with alcohol, you know, you know what you do. You, you, you avoid the certain aisles in the grocery store. You, you, know, you avoid those things. If you know where your weaknesses are, you know how to block out those temptations. It also means that we sever those emotional attachments that can threaten our marriage as well. In other words, we need to maintain appropriate distances in relationships. And we are promised, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that there is no temptation that has ever seized you that God will not make a way out, that there is a way of escape. Oh, we play with it too much, don't we, church? We play with temptation. We play with it. We hold it in our hands. We look through it. And then we wonder, with tears in our eyes, coming to the cross for forgiveness, we ask, well, Lord, why did I do that? That's because, son, you're reading the newspaper way too long. You put it down, you look at your hands, and they're stained with the same ink. You don't play with it. Number three, recognize your weaknesses. Recognize your weaknesses. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, the Bible says clearly, yes, that God does provide a way of escape through temptation but we need to back it up one more verse because Paul wrote just before that little promise about the way of escape. He says, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. You need to recognize, let me just put it to you this way. Your heart is so stained by sin from Adam, we'll call it Adam's curse, you are capable of about anything. Don't think that you're that strong in any area. Satan listens out for that too. He loves to hear you say that. This past week we were shocked at the news reports of this young lady and a cameraman in uh, South Carolina. Virginia, thank you, Virginia shot on live television. The, the gunman, everybody 
was now turning their attention onto the gunman, who later, I believe that day, took his own life. But it didn't take long for the polarization effect to happen. You had those who said, yes, he was a troubled young man. Yes, he was this. Yes, he was that. But then you had some who knew him much earlier in his life, and he said, we, we don't know. We didn't know that guy who did those murders. My point here is this. I'm sure there was one point in that young man's life before he ever decided to go into broadcasting, if you were to tell him, son, one day you're going to murder two people and then take your own life in one day, he says, no way. I ain't that crazy. That will never happen to me. You hear that a lot, don't you? The tornado wipes out a community. And what do you hear that young woman say, being interviewed on a news channel, said, we always heard about it happening to someone else. We never thought it would happen to us. You be careful about where you think you're strong. I tell myself all the time, listen, I, I'm capable of anything. If Satan gets a hold of me long enough and strong enough, and the same is true for you, you and I must cling. I'm telling you guys, we must cling with every strength we can muster. We must cling to the cross. Or it's going to come to you too one day. The Bible says, listen, pluck out your eye. You cut off your hand. You do whatever you need to to not give Satan the upper hand. Number five, protect your marriage. Protect your marriage. You build a hedge of affection as much as protection around your marriages. Did you know marriages don't collapse overnight? They don't. I, I've never known. I, I've, I've been in ministry since 1996, been serving in a local church, and I've seen marriages come and go. And there's something about every single one of them. And if you've ever been down this road, you can attest. Your marriage didn't fall apart in just one night. It was a slow leak. When I was a, a kid, students, I did a, I did a, we had science fairs. I don't even know if y'all do science fairs anymore. We had a science fair. And you had to do this little project. And, you know, about 80% of the you know, classmates, they all were doing volcanoes. I want to do something different. And so I, I traced and, and, and studied how molecules will go through seemingly impenetrable objects. And here's how I proved it. I took a series of balloons and I blew them up and, and, I, and I tied them off and I observed them over about a week. And have you ever noticed that balloons kind of deflate over time? Okay. You, you just, you blow it up, you leave it. And it, but if you fill that same balloon up with water, it retains all the water. Well, how come a tied-up, tight balloon will lose air but not water? That's because air molecules are smaller than water molecules, and water molecules don't necessarily go through the, the, the latex, rubber, whatever of the balloon as easy as air. And so that's why balloons, when you blow them up at a birthday party, after a few days, they you know, kind of shrink down. It's a slow leak. Marriages do the same. If you don't watch it, They'll suffer and die from that slow leak. You must find ways 
to help your partner grow, feel satisfied. You commit to their needs, emotional, spiritual, and sexual. Paul is very candid about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5 especially. God put this hedge of protection around our marriages so that our lives will be full and blessed and satisfied. We should cultivate and tend to that hedge through our thoughts and, and through our actions. Those are, those are four, actually, uh, four hedges that I wanted to give you. Let me, let me kind of turn our thoughts to us as a church. Because where there is a church that's worth their salt, there's going to be in its congregation those who've been wounded by adultery either as uh, guilty or victim or, or just somehow involved, you're going to have it. So let me just remind you of a couple things that we as a church uh, must be aware of. Number one, trust the blood. You trust the blood. I want you to trust the grace of God through the blood of Christ. You take your sins, whatever they are, you take them to the foot of the cross, and then here's what I want you to do. I want you to let it go and leave it there. You know why some of you struggle? It's because you'll ask for forgiveness, but then you'll pick it right back up and take it back with you. Anybody ever prayed for forgiveness over and over and over again? God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Anybody like me ever done that? I, I've done that. Because I forget what it's like to have a Savior whose blood, all-sufficient blood, to take it there and say, just, just leave it. Leave it behind. Don't carry it with you. That burden is too great to bear. So I'm telling you there's forgiveness. Then number, uh, the, the second one, which is the last one actually, in terms of categories, the, the words for the church here. As a church, we respond with grace and truth. To whomever and everyone who's ever been affected by adultery. With grace, we beat our chest as that tax collector did in Luke chapter 18, and we offer forgiveness to that sinner. You're familiar with that story, aren't you? Jesus told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Tax collector could be overheard saying, Lord, thank you for not making, uh, excuse me, the Pharisee was at, said, <coughs> thank you for not making me like this old tax collector. Thank you, Lord. I'm not like them. And there was a tax collector beating his chest saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now I ask you, who is forgiven? Who receives God's grace? Don't dare utter the words, God, thank you for not making me like them. Your day would be coming soon. So 
So that's how we respond with grace, but also with truth. You know what we do? We pick up the offended and we walk with them on a path of restoration. That's why you've heard me talk about church discipline. Because far too often we are willing to shoot our wounded, to shoot those who've been weakened by sin, tried by, by some controversy, and we are more willing to sacrifice them on the altar of Facebook and church hallway gossip than we are to take them by the hand and in the other hand, the Word of God, and we walk with them on a path of restoration. That is restorative church discipline. It is never to shame the person, but to take that repentant and that wounded offender and bring them to the foot of the cross and make them fit again for ministry. Now, I make it a point in my sermons to think very carefully on how I start moving into the invitation. And so, you know, naturally, what I'm supposed to do this morning is say, okay, everyone here who's been guilty of adultery, come forward and get forgiven. That would be foolish. that we would be equally as foolish if we did not think that at some time or another, all of us on a spiritual level have played a harlot with God himself and left our sacred relationship with him and went off to worship something else that our lusts lead us to and we ignore who our husband is. It's called spiritual adultery. And all throughout the Word of God, we were warned. Do you remember how Israel was warned? Prophet after prophet would come and tell them, you have played the harlot. You left God and followed your own lustful pursuits. You followed your flesh. You know, no more than, than God had uttered these commands to Moses that at the foot of the mount there was Israel led by Aaron gathering up all the jewelry from the ladies to make an image so that they would worship. <clears throat> no sooner had God been uttering these words to Moses, Israel was already playing the harlot. I'm telling you, it is easy for your selfishness to get a hold of you, for your pride to get a hold of you, and lead you away from worshiping a one true Lord God and you worshiping something else, that spiritual adultery, that's where our invitation begins. It really is. That, because we need to ask for forgiveness over divided hearts toward Him. And where we have divided hearts, listen, church, we will have a divided church. And we see, we see the impact almost every day. Why? I talk to people. You talk to people. We listen to their conversation. We, we, we listen to what's important to them. And we can learn very quick. I'm just talking about church people now. We learn very quickly through their conversation what's important to them. And I've been in church long enough 
and I have seen to my shame more people concerned over the color of carpet or other appointments in the church and furniture and this or that and could care less about the lost right next door to them. Shame on you if you've done that. That's where our invitation begins. Where we have this command right here, you shall not commit adultery. My first thought is, Lord, have I committed adultery against you? And now, right now, listen, now is the time and today is the day where we should not be ashamed together with our husbands, with our wives, with our children, as a family, by myself. It does not matter. And plead for mercy and forgiveness at an old-fashioned altar and saying, God, I am sorry for my divided passions and lusts. I seek you. I seek you alone. Father, forgive me. Restore to me the passion for the kingdom once again. I'm reading biography of some soldiers who were in the 101st Airborne who were part of Operation Overlord. By the way, we don't have many of those veterans around with us. So I would encourage you, you listen to them talk. If you know someone is still living, ask them questions. Talk to them about it. And read the books. But this one particular soldier in the 506 of the 101st Airborne, he said about these hedgerows, he said, on the ground, it was in our face. It was, it was daunting, these hedgerows. We, we thought we'd just kind of easily jump over them. But that's what we were led to believe. But these were ginormous walls sometimes and thick and... and it was crazy. They miscalculated the size. But, but, but this, this is what he said. Listen to this. But from the air, it looked very beautiful. Neatly, orderly, as if God intended it to be that way. That's because was. It is. God did intend for these hedges to be in our lives. God meant it for it to be that way. When my love begins with God and nowhere else, I'll find that I'm not really contentious with all those hedgerows. I can, I can learn to live with them. Matter of fact, I can navigate them quite easily. When I have no other love but the Lord God in my marriage, my wife knows it. I'm going to know it from my wife. My children will see it in their mom and dad. And let me tell you this. You can't hide on Sunday what's in your home on Saturday. Because whatever I have in my heart, listen to me, church, that this, is, this is worth the whole sermon right here. Whatever I have in my heart on Saturday night, I'm bringing it with me on Sunday morning. And whatever is in my heart on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that's what makes up this church. 
If your heart is divided over the kingdom, if your heart is divided over God, if your heart is, if it's pursuing other lusts, you're bringing it into the church. That happened with Israel one time, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm chasing this rabbit. But there was an old boy named Achan in the book of Joshua. A little passage there, we, we refer to it as Achan's sin. Remember, God told Israel, you're going to go out and fight, but you leave all the treasures out there. Now, I'm kind of simplifying, and I'm giving you the Chris Wooded version because I'm, you know, I'm from the country originally, and I learned things kind of simple. God said, you keep all the treasures out there. Don't you take anything for yourself. Old Achan was a good soldier, except on one account. His eyes got the better of him, and what he saw he liked, and he brought it with him, took it in his tent and hid it. God judged the entire lot over one man's sin. Don't you dare think that you can just keep up what you got going on, and it won't affect the rest of us. Eventually it will. I believe that principle of the Old Testament is a New Testament foundation as well. We must be careful. And I'm telling you, church, we ought to have no other love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have designed relationships the way that you have, not only to impact us in our marriages, in our homes, but, God, it impacts us here in the church house on a Sunday morning and a Sunday night and a Wednesday night and every single day of the week because we never escape being the bride of Christ. But Father, I have a weak heart sometimes and even in my mind and in my heart, I chase after wrongful lust. I will chase after the things that that I selfishly would want for myself, but they do not honor the kingdom. I worry about things. I get caught up in desires that, that, that bring no one else to the foot of the cross. God, I'll even confess to you that sometimes my lusts are not even immoral. Matter of fact, they can be quite the opposite. I'll let my silly preferences take me down roads that I should have never gone on. And because I've lost touch with my one true love, I wound, and I can hurt the bride of Christ. So, Father, I don't know how anybody here would want to come and respond to this message. I don't know if I've ever really given them something clear to do. But I'm not going to worry about that. Because during this time, this is between you and them. I want them to respond how they are led. I want your will to be done. Head still bowed, eyes still closed. On any given invitation, we struggle with putting one foot in front of the other. We really do. We get worried about the person next to us. We, We get worried about what someone may think. But I believe every single one of us in here would be willing to say, we don't care. We are glad to see a sinner come to Jesus. We are glad to see a saint patching up their lives and their hearts. We're glad to see God moving. So it may be this morning that before you come, you whisper to the person next to you, I'll go if you go. 
Yeah, I heard that on the radio this morning. I thought, that's, that's impactful. I'll go if you go. That's what those soldiers did. And they won the battle. Heavenly Father, we give this time to you. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.